Kingdom Casts, a podcast that has in-depth discussions about things that really do not need to be discussed in depth. Warning. The Kingdom Cast podcast contains spoilers about comic books, movies, and entertainment in general, as well as anything else that crosses their minds. Please do not take any medical advice seriously, nor legal advice that they may or may not give out. For that matter, it's probably for the best that you take nothing that they say seriously. I'm Stan Daniel, and with me as always is Albert Marsh. So, Albert... (laughs) Yeah. What's going on in your life? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I just want to personally apologize to the 17 people that emailed us and the one person that thought to hit us up on Twitter for daring to say that I was just going to keep my head down until this all blows over. <laughs> As if announcers stand at the beginning of each program telling people, don't listen to them, they don't know what they're talking about, (laughs) wasn't enough. (laughs) I am here to tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that neither Albert nor I know the first damn thing about coronavirus. Am I safe in saying that? I don't know anything about it. There we go. So we highly recommend everybody follow CDC's suggestions to the letter, and I'll just be over here out of everybody's way. Unless you want to go to the beach. Apparently the beach is okay. Well, that's only in Florida, though. I I think Mobile is deserted. (laughs) But yeah, I did see the pictures of everybody at the beach. Well, they closed Disney World. And if you go to Florida for Disney World and they close Disney World, what else are you going to do? Well, I had it wrote down to ask you how them lines at Disney World were doing, so you go down there. (laughs) Yeah, all right, great. So I don't get to ride Rise of the Resistance right away. I can wait. I'll be patient. Yeah. What if, no, they, what if they don't? What if it never opens again? Don't now. Okay, now stuff like that. That would get an email from me if I was listening to the podcast. Make Albert. Do not let Albert say Disney World will never reopen. Disney World is going to reopen. You don't know that. Oh, I know that. So. We could be eaten. Language edited for your protection. By this time tomorrow. Okay, now that I'm just going to have to cut out. (laughs) You see, that crap we can't use at all because I don't like dealing with angry tweets. I don't like dealing with email that is asking me things other than comic books or critiquing me for saying things because I'm the wrong person. I'm I'm not the person you want to be around in something like this. Thanks to the cult like school that I was placed in, my natural tendency is that when everybody else is going one way, I want to go the other. And that's not that's not a very good survival skill right there. Because usually the pack is running away from a wolf. I'm the one that says, I, you know, I haven't seen the wolf for myself. <laughs> but that's good news for the rest of the pack because the wolf will have to pause to finish killing and eating me. So it'll give the rest of you time to get away. Moving right along, we did have a few questions. We did get some serious emails asking in relation to the coronavirus, where are the comic books coming from? Another email just kind of very nicely put it, what are the origins of the comic books? Where do they come out? Most of the comic books come out of Canada and get sent to the Diamond Distribution Centers and redistributed. But to put a lot 
of these fears to rest, I'm going to go ahead and read a full press release from Diamond Comics Distributors that came out earlier this week. This is from Diamond Comics Distributors. As was mentioned last week, our employee wellness and business continuity teams are meeting daily to address the needs of our customers and vendors throughout the disruption caused by the coronavirus. Today, I have some updates on our progress that I wanted to share. We and our publishing partners are continuing to work on a comprehensive plan to address the health of our industry. There have been numerous remedies discussed, and more information will be available to you soon. We understand and share your concerns and are doing all that we can to ensure we address the various challenges in a way that's geared to the long-term health of the industry. Our distribution centers. As we become fully aware of the coronavirus and its impact, we immediately stocked each of our Diamond Comic Distribution and Alliance Game Distribution Centers with gloves for the employees and implemented enhanced cleaning policies, as recommended by the CDC and other authorities. We have monitored the health and activities of those teams and advised employees of what procedures they should take if they have any symptoms of illness. Through the professional organizations who host webinars and conference calls with the CDC and other experts, we have been in constant contact with those who can best direct us in how to handle this situation. We are also working closely with our employment agencies and local authorities, continuing to monitor the distribution center's best practices to ensure the safety and security of our supply chain and our ability to consistently deliver product to the retailers who need it. Gepi Family Enterprises and Diamond Comics Distributors Home Office. To safeguard the health and safety of our team members, we have enabled as many people as possible to work from home. As the professionals remind us, the best way to slow and eventually stop the spread of this virus is through social distancing, even when that is a complex process. Beginning March 18, 2020, our Hunt Valley, Maryland office will be operating with minimal staff until further notice. Team members will be working remotely while processing incoming support tickets, orders, and answering questions. We have tested our various systems and modified our internal communications procedures and are confident that we can continue to effectively serve the customers and vendors who rely on us during this disruption. And then they give the emails, uh, the direct emails to the people any of the retailers need to contact about any of these situations. They then move on to local closures and interruptions. With towns and states considering mandatory closings of non-essential businesses, we anticipate many of our customers being affected. Those customers may be required to close to the public or could see reduced traffic as members of the service industry are off work and concerned with their incomes. Some retailers have turned to innovative changes, such as curbside service or even local delivery to better serve their customers. So anyway, that's basically it. Diamond Comics, from the sound of that, it sounds like they've taken every step possible for them to take. It seems to me that Diamond Comics has gone above and beyond what the CDC has suggested they do and are doing even more to ensure the safety of the product that they ship to the customers that order at the retail stores and such, and eventually, of course, the consumer. What do you think, Albert? I don't know. There ain't nothing anybody can do about any of this. 
No, there's not. Everybody's just going to have to be patient with everything. But as for the origin of the comic books and as for how they're treated at the warehouse, look, I've been to their warehouse, their main warehouse, several times. And I'm here to tell you that it's it's a very clean looking facility to begin with. Never once did I look around that warehouse and see any garbage laying anywhere or any signs of miscarry anywhere. As a matter of fact, I've often described it as it looks like one of the robot factories out of Terminator. Yeah, very high-end, very high-tech, everything clean, everything functioning. It's a, ni- it's a very nice facility. So Diamond Comics is doing all they can in, in this point. Image Comics has come forward with a statement saying that they're going to reduce the number of comic books they publish in the oncoming weeks to kind of help with the situation. Yeah, they've also moved Free Comic Book Day to the summer. Well, no, they moved it to the entire month of May. Nope. They they said that earlier today, and they completely changed it an hour or two ago. Oh, okay, just before we went on the air. Earlier today, they had announced a Free Comic Book May, where they were going to stagger the release of the Free Comics over the course of the entire month of May, rather than one big event. Given our past experiences, our uh, 16 free comic book days at Kingdom, uh, that's understandable, especially like given how many people we would have show up that one day. You just told me that right now that they've canceled free comic book May, so that's not happening. They're going to push free comic book day back to the summer sometime? Yeah. But some of those books are going to have to come out before that. This is a cluster. I guess, I guess I guess doing it later in the summer, like late July or through August, may give companies an, enough time to maybe just sort of slap something together. But a lot of free comic book day books, they come out in May, and then like over the next month Kick or so, you, you get the follow-up to it. Like a Whether it's just like DC or Marvel setting up an event, or just like a preview for a book coming out in a week or two or something like that. Okay, well, we know Image is already staggering releases of its line, staggering releases of new comic books coming out from them or the amount of comic books that they offer within a week. In all seriousness, how long do you think it is before Marvel and DC do the same thing? They're going to have to cut back, especially Marvel. I figured we might get something, some type of announcement within a week. So right now, Free Comic Book Day has been pushed back. They are not doing the Free Comic Book Month of May like they announced earlier today. And just for reference, today is March 18th, 2020, when we're recording this. One great thing about this is that all of the comic book publishers and Diamond Comics seem to be working hand-in-hand on this. Yeah to try to figure out the best way to handle this, the best way to approach. There are greater concerns than comic books during this time. But our podcast primarily deals with, guess what? Comic books. So, of course, that's what we're going to report on. That's what our focus is going to be on in this situation. And also, along the same lines, Black Widow, just like all the other movies, has been pushed back. It looks like Warner Brothers is getting ready to push back Wonder Woman 84 as well. Unlike normal times when a movie's pushed back, that's bad news. This is simply, all of these movies are simply being pushed back until the coronavirus situation ebbs. So there'll be theater goers again. Hey, what? Now, along that line, and I I know you don't give too two raggedy ands about Frozen 2, but you know Disney released it on Disney Plus earlier for people. Yeah, I noticed it this weekend when I was watching Clone Wars. Okay, you notice uh, Bloodshot is about to be streaming. Yeah, that's going to go streaming. Invisible Man's going to go on streaming. 
Yeah, a lot of the movies, Universal, all the Universal stuff that was scheduled in the immediate future is going to go direct to streaming. Also, I, these are these are smaller movies. I mean, mm-hmm. Frozen Two is a big movie. We already had its full run, but some of these movies were like budget-wise smaller movies. Yeah. So they may actually use this as a test run just to see if, hey, if a small movie comes out like Invisible Man and makes a bunch of profit right off the bat, we could just a couple weeks later say, here it is on streaming services and go from there. They've tested a few movies like that in the past, but I think this may be the turning point for society as a whole. I think they're going to test the market and see how much we're willing to pay for a movie that they were otherwise just going to release at the theater mm-hmm. and wait six months before they released it on DVD, Blu-ray, or what, or streaming, or what have you. Rise of Skywalker started streaming a little earlier as well. Uh, no, no one cares about that. Everybody cares about that. Everybody cares about that. I, I've seen in the Disney, on the Disney groups I'm in on Facebook and elsewhere, everybody's like, well, thanks for Frozen 2. We appreciate it, but could you put Rise of Skywalker on Disney Plus? Hey, trust them, guys. don't start on me that's the more or less the immediate news on what's going on with the comic book industry and concerning the coronavirus crisis do what you can don't expose yourself but do what you can to help small businesses i know local restaurants and all are are now bringing out food to you keeping their drive-through open shutting the lobbies down but doing drive-through in many restaurants a local favorite here in alabama diplomat deli is doing curbside service and bringing it right out to you when you pull up because they're not equipped. They're not set up with the drive-through. So it's important to do what you can, as you can, for the local businesses that are trying to stay open wherever you are. And, of course, that includes your local comic book shops. Having gone through... Yeah. I got a thought on all this. All right. What's your thought on all this? You know how, like, I, I would... Occasionally, we'd talk about my views as far as we're still... 9-11 9-11 happened. Yeah. And ever since then, we've been in a post-9-11 world. Oh, yeah. Without anything yeah. major happening. Yeah. You've well, been... in my view, is this is the coronavirus or COVID-19 or however you want to say it. This is that event. So once we get oh. to the other side of that event, we're in a new era, so to speak, as far as how post-corona. we... Post-corona. Yeah. Post-corona or COVID or however you want to do it. That's what we're transitioning to. Yeah. You've been saying that a lot. I mean, you didn't say, oh, coronavirus. You said there's another event coming. You've said it in previous podcasts, and of course there is. And this is definitely that event. It's hard to make any predictions about anything at this point until you come out on the other side of this, because there's ramifications. Even, let's say that magically, the situation at hand in America only lasts for a week. Not going to. It's going to be much longer than that. But let's say that by this time, next Wednesday, everything is completely back to normal, as we understand it. It will have already changed situations, protocols, in a very fundamental way for our society. We've had this scare and going forward. So given that this is probably going to last a few months, yeah, I, I can't imagine, nobody knows. We're just going to have to see and adapt to it and yeah, trust our friends and neighbors and family and go forward in it the best way and we can. Then it'll probably, in the long term, change it all for the better. Yeah, hopefully. But in the meantime... Right now, we still got new comics this week, and the last time I checked, that's what this program was about. So, Albert, would you like to talk about the stuff that came out this week? I would enjoy that. Uh, I would, too. Very much so. 
Let's start off with Boom Studios, Alienated Number 2, Simon Spurrier, the writer, and Chris Wildgoose on art. Albert, when we talked about Number 1, I was excited about it, and you were you enjoyed it, but you were trepidatious because you were thinking that, man, eh, this could be E.T. Yeah. Man, I don't think this is E.T. <laughs> no, I'm still a little iffy on it. Like, it ain't quite sold me completely. But yeah, I, it's still a good book. Once we see what happened to the social media girl in this issue, yeah, you're not quite clear on what went down there. You think you know, but you're not 100%. Definitely defied my expectations of it. Not an E.T. redo, and it's still well worth your money. I love the art in this. The art is very expressive. It does not pull you out of anything. Chris Waldgoose is very good on the faces. It is. The the art in this book is very good. I highly recommend Alienated 1 and 2 from Boom Studios. Number 2 was just released today. I'm overall sort of iffy, so do dynamic like a 3. Yeah. But the writing and art, I give a 4. So you've given this a 3.7. I gave it a 5. I gave it a 5 because of the iffiness of one of the three main characters in it, given the situation with the social media girl that we see. I'm hooked on this. I want to see where this goes. I think Simon Spurrier has got a definite hook with this story, and I love the artwork in it. I want to see Chris Wildgoose doing stuff at Marvel. Well, or DC, either one. I think Chris Wildgoose would be perfect on Young Justice or Miles Morales for that. Yeah, he, yeah, I think he'd, he'd work good on something like Miles Morales or just any teen book. He'd probably, he'd probably fit well with him. I gave Alienated Strike Fives across the board. Albert gave it a 3.7. We both think you should pick it up and take a look at it. And now, still from Boom Studios, you know, I'm telling you, Boom Studios has been kicking some things up. They've been has doing been, pretty good. Yes, they have. Wicked Things, number one, written by John Allison and art by Max Saren. I loved it. It was Nancy Drew, but not Nancy Drew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I liked it. I kept thinking, that, was this that, because like, I was looking down the list, I'm like, this has to be that Nancy Drew book. Yeah, that's, little... Yeah, that, a book that's obviously inspired by that book. It brings elements of it into it, but it's definitely not Nancy Drew. It's anti-Nancy Drew. Yeah. But it's in that genre. You've got a teen detective, and apparently this is such a thing in their reality that they have award ceremony for best teen detective ages 12 through 18. The humor in it above and beyond. I thought it was very funny. I actually thought of the word that I kept thinking of is how enchanting the book was. It was great humor. I think it's a must read. It's a great spin on something we really don't see in comics often enough that works. The characterization, the art in it fits perfectly. Yeah, definitely pick up Wicked Things number one. Parents, I'm here to tell you, if you want to get your teenage daughter into reading comic books, this is the book to start right here. Yeah, I I really liked it. The only thing I did not like about it was the noses. I noticed that too, but I thought it worked. What was off about the noses to you particularly? I don't know. I I just kept looking at all their noses and I didn't like the way they looked. He's one of these people you can tell that he was using the noses to distinguish, to set apart each character and their facial features. But you're thinking it's because it's drawing your attention to it that it may have been overdone? For some reason, the only thing I could think about was, God, and I don't remember which manga it was. Somebody got a hold of some manga a long time ago and translated it into English. And when they did, they drew noses on everybody. 
And all I could think of when I looked at this art was that that, that someone went back over this person's art and drew noses on everybody. Cuckoo doesn't have a nose. <laughs> For some reason, I want to say Glenn freaking Danzig, the musician, had a comic book line called yeah. like Veronica or yeah, Veronica. Oh, wait a was? minute, wasn't that that wasn't that situation? Was that where Gene Simmons' son got called out for potential plagiarism? Over no, no, the that happened way after this. The, okay. the, the I remember what you're talking about because that's what he did. He went through and just sort of made collages almost and just sort of. Traced it like he pulled a Greg Lamb, but made it worse than Greg Lamb somehow. I want to say Greg Lamb not banned you from Twitter yet. <laughs> Greg Lamb, he don't scare me. The Veronica comics came out in the early to mid nineties. Maybe it was him and that Devil Man comic or something. Someone translated a manga and they added noses to everybody. So the moral of the story is I don't know. I'm just rambling. Oh, shit, I don't know anything. <laughs> I gave it fives across the board. I hated to do that coming right off of Alienated and giving it fives, but I really did. I love both of these books, and I think both of these books are well worth your cash. I gave the writing and dynamic a four. I gave the art a one because of the noses. <laughs> I really do like the art in it, though. I feel that it earned all my fives. So you gave the writing and dynamic a four and the art a one. Yeah, I'm, I'm joking. The art's four. Oh, really? Okay, so you yeah. gave it fours across the board. Okay, good deal. But the nose yeah. thing does bother me. Check it out and let us know. Does the nose thing bother you too? <laughs> now that I've told y'all about it, y'all are just going to look at people's noses. Though. I'm going to make it a point to go back and look at it. <laughs> I'm going to ruin the comic book for everybody. On to Dark Horse Comics, Starship Down number one, written by Justin Jim Pally and art by Andrea Mudai. I thought this had all the earmarks of a very good story in place. I think this first issue was set up to draw you in, and it did exactly that. There was just enough of characterization in it to tell you that the writer is talented enough to make the voices sound different and has an idea who everybody in it is uh, just a bit beyond their archetypes. I like the setup. I think I'm going to like where this is going. And for me personally, you can't really go wrong when you have the Vatican as the bad guys. Why was the Vatican in there? Because the whole setup, we're not giving away the entire thing, but it, the name gives this away. They found alongside cave drawings that represented extraterrestrial life by Neanderthals inside of an ice cave, they found an actual starship frozen in it. The Americans claimed eminent domain, but the Russians were invited in as a way to avoid an uh, international incident, since they knew about it too. And apparently, somebody somewhere notified the Vatican. And so the Vatican shows up because, given the time period that that starship had to crash there in relation to the cave markings around the starship, that implies that the starship had created created humanity or done experiments on Neanderthals to turn them into modern humans. Anyway, the Vatican doesn't like it because it doesn't go by their book. Oh God, I shouldn't have said that. The Vatican doesn't like it because on the surface it looks like it contradicts the Bible. Yeah, but does it, I still don't understand why they even had to invite them. I don't understand why the Vatican Library will not let anybody and everybody into it. Okay, in reality. So for that same reason, 
That's why the Vatican would show up at something like this. Somebody it, somewhere in government would be a devout Catholic. And, you know, if they were in a position of power with the American government, they would be able to get word to the Pope. And the Pope, of course, would send a representative to make sure that this is handled in a way that does not demean the Catholic Church. Yeah, but that seems like an odd thing. That if the book took place pre-World War II, I could maybe see the Catholic do not underestimate the power of the Catholic Church. You and I are in the middle of Alabama. So the the dominant Christian-based reality in the state of Alabama is some form of Baptist. Now, you've got 45 different versions of Baptist to choose from, but that's what's dominated life in Alabama. The rest of the world, well, let's put it like this. If they found a starship in the Antarctic next to cave dweller drawings, nobody would be calling Billy Graham. But they will call the Pope because the Vatican is well, still a force to be dead. Nobody would be calling Billy Graham Jr. <laughs> and this is in all seriousness. I have the utmost respect for Billy Graham, and I'm using him as a serious reference, as a serious earmark to the Baptist religion, instead of saying using Joel Olstein, who we all know. <laughs> what if they called Jesse Duplantis? I don't know, but nobody would call them. <laughs> they would call the Pope. To the rest of the world, Catholicism is the dominant Christian religion. I That's thought it was the college football. No, again, football is only in the state of Alabama. It is in Texas, too. For religious levels. Yeah, but Texans have other such. Texans have other concerns as well. We don't. All we've got is the almighty saving. You having to remember the Alamo. I gave Starship Down writing a four. The Art of Four. I gave the Dynamic a five because I'm psyched up about where this book has the potential to go. So my overall score was 4.3. I give the Art and Dynamic a four. I don't know about the writing. Like, the plot's real good, but I don't... I will say the writing's a three. But it still doesn't make any sense why the Catholics would be there. Makes perfect sense. Makes the only thing I can think it make perfect sense is, you know, that library no one's allowed to go into? I referenced that just a minute ago, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah that's what I'm talking about. Unless in that comic book, the Vatican has books that have that stuff on it. Well, I'm sure they, the Vatican has everything in their in their library. We're just not permitted into it because screw us. On a similar subject, while we're talking about this, you haven't been watching The Young Pope on HBO, have you? No, I started through Amazon. I started HBO back up again to watch Westworld. So I watched Westworld this weekend and, and over the last couple of days I watched The Outsider and I kept meaning to try to start The Young Pope but I just can't get in the mood for it. Definitely have to be in the mood for that. I've seen the entire first season and Denise is watching the second season currently and I'm required to be in the room as we watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I keep calling it The Young Pope. It's The New Pope. Lord, there is a great deal more nudity involved in Catholicism than you would have thought. Well, it's an HBO show. <laughs> It's different. Okay, so Starship Down, did you, in the end analysis, do you think it's worth their money to pick up a new number one, see if they're interested? Yeah, absolutely. Me too. So we both recommend Dark Horse's yep. Starship Down. Marvel Comics. Let's start with a galaxy far, far away. We've skipped the last issue of Star Wars, and now we're on to Star Wars number four, written by Charles Soule, art by Jesus Saez, 
the Star Wars reboot takes place immediately after Empire Strikes Back and the events therein. I still don't think it's as good as the Vader book, but I am very much enjoying it. It's good character development, and it does plug some story gaps between Empire and Return of the Jedi, most specifically how Luke got Red 5 back from Bespin, from Cloud City. And so I greatly appreciate that. And it's things I can buy. It's things I can see happening. They're not asking a lot of us in this. Now, you were getting concerned because Luke's having visions of a Jedi in shadow offering him a lightsaber or yeah. appearing to him. And you don't like that. Let me ask you this. What if it's Ahsoka? I don't know if I'd care. I think it'd be great if it's Ahsoka that he's having visions of. I mean, it'd be interesting and I'd like it, but I think... It For some reason, uh, covering covering the gap between New Hope and Empire, there seems the first run did a lot of, like there was a lot more to, you could do with it compared to covering the gap between Empire and Jedi. Well, so far, I think they're finding a lot to do with it. Now, there's a greater gap between New Hope and Empire than there is between Empire and Jedi. But remember, before Disney bought them, they did the whole Prince Shizor situation, Shadows that, of the Empire. Is that how you say that guy's name? Shizor, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 I remember Shadows. They plugged a lot into Shadows. They had a couple of comic books following it up, but comic books only covered certain yeah. aspects. Yeah, Dash Rendar. Yeah, Dash Rendar and the Outlander, which is, that, you know, the Outlander is part of continuity. Yeah, you had the uh, Nintendo 64 game. Oh, God, yeah. It took me forever to get past IGA. Which I may, I always thought about going back and playing it, but it may be too janky to tolerate. I don't know. I can tolerate a lot of the older stuff. I Super mean, I Nintendo. can too. Yeah, but see, I understand there's a difference between all that 2D games yeah, and like trying to play early, th going back and playing early 3D games again, especially <laughs> action games like that. There, if if the like if you went back and did it, you'd at least need to some type of modernization of the controls, and a lot of them they've never had a re-release re to do it. Once you sit down and try to play it with a controller or, or even the keyboard, it may just be so out of whack you can't even tolerate it. Oh, I have to. Yeah, I don't even think I still. I may still have the game system somewhere. Uh, I'd have to look. Uh, well, I think if you go to Good Old Games, which is they just spell it on the website gog.com, gog.com. Yeah, they've released a lot of old, and it may be on Steam too. But I know they've released a ton of old Star Wars games on there. I'm pretty sure Shadows of the Empire is probably on that. Recently, I've played like Super Star Wars for Super Nintendo. Yeah, but those are Empire. those are like yeah, just standard two D. Th those age well because they're Mario. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah not, they're... not necessarily Mario, but due to the existence of Super Mario Brothers for NES, anyone that wanted to do two D games could play that game. And be like, well, that's here's how everything works and copy it. Things like Shadow of the Empire came out. There was Mario 64, Zelda Ocarina of Time. And, and oh a lot god, of, I had that one too. A lot of developers and stuff played those games because those games showed everyone what you could do with 3D games like that. Well, the problem is, a lot of those N64 games were already in development so none of them had those games to copy off of. Well, that was just a you know, mess of jank once they came out. And they, they looked cool and it was cool stuff, but I don't know. But in comparison to what we got yeah. today. I still love Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars fanatic, of course, but I would it's gotta be Ahsoka that's contacting him through the force. Mary Jade or something like that. No, Mary Jade is no longer continuity. Get over it. <laughs> I don't I ain't nothing to get over with. I never cared about any of that mess to start with. Well, that was meant mostly for Michael Nip and Rhett Barnett. <laughs>
I think Ahsoka is about to show up in the Star Wars book. I gave the writing a five. I gave the art a three. The art threw me off a couple of points. And again, it's this, it's this problem you have with drawing characters that were established in movies yeah. and have such well-known faces and such. I gave the dynamic a five. So score 4.3 for me on Star Wars number four. How about you? You're way too generous with these Star Wars books. I'm not not on Star Wars, and I, Vader earns it, and this one I feel earns it too. I really enjoyed the Lando and Lobot situation. I appreciated the fact they showed us how we get Red 5 back. Well, what? I gave the writing an R3 and Dynamic 2. Oh, you, you sure? <laughs> and I could give it a 1. There seems like... There is stuff you can do between Empire and Jedi, but this book, it ain't oh, we, there. They so. can take their time with this. So you gave it a 2.7. I gave it a 4.3. You're a Star Wars fan. This is solid stuff. I think this is far and away better than anything Dark Horse ever did outside of a few of the short stories I, in Star I wouldn't Wars say, I wouldn't say that. I would. I read all of it and did not. I was never emotionally invested in the original Marvel comics from the 70s. Well, they weren't good. Oh, no. Nor was I emotionally invested in any of the Dark Horse stuff. I like the first Crimson Empire, but the one, my favorite Dark Horse Star Wars book was Star Wars Tales. And that's because you'd spend $7 and you'd get four or five stories in it. You were guaranteed, out of four stories, you were guaranteed to like at least two of them. And of course, none of that's continuity, but it it was enjoyable to me. I very much appreciate and like the majority of what Marvel Comics has done in the modern incarnation of the Star Wars books, especially with Vader. They're going to run out of story to tell. They're never going to run out of story Yes, they do. We've run out of Star Wars story to tell since Lucas we have, original, we have original never, movies. We have never run out of Star Wars story like, Literally, the only thing you could do with Star Wars after the original movies was to do the prequels. And George Lucas did that. There's nothing left to do with Star Wars. There is plenty left to do with Star Wars. With it's, what? Well, I'm not on their storyboard development group. Well, maybe I just you know be. we've got more great stuff. You love The Mandalorian. It was enjoyable, but it was still the same stuff. Oh. It's set in the same galaxy. It's Mandalorian same also had the worst scene ever in Star Wars in it. And you still ain't telling me where all them Sith guys came from on that planet. Exegol and Rise of Skywalker. I, I told you where they came from. It's in the episode nine thing, which will be out this week. But I point blank told you. They're cultists. They're Sith. They're like Satan worshippers. Uh, they're they're out there. Nobody's actively looking for them. It's like the Satan worshippers that gather around Vulcan on Red Mountain here in Birmingham. We ignore them. <laughs> Mostly because of the smell. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Didn't you think that was funny? <laughs> sure. It turns out, in addition to Empire, the Kree Scroll situation that Marvel Comics has coming up. We also now have something called Infinite Destinies with the Infinity Stones coming up. But they're, I think they're actually doing this right. Have you heard of Infinite Destinies? Yeah, I saw it. It's the Infinity Stones and all. But as I understand it, these are going to be special stories that run through the annuals. Have I got that right? I think that's how they're going to do it. Yeah, I'd prefer that. In fact, I, I'm actually looking forward to this as opposed to Empire. You know, this is something that we, it feels like we can get in and out of a little easier. So the Infinity Stones are set to make a return, and they're supposed to appear in the annuals of Iron Man, Captain America, Ghost Rider, White Fox, and Miss Marvel, Prince of Power, and Star. 
and then there's a classified ending to it. But you see, I think that's the way they should do events that aren't going to be big, big events. They shouldn't force a big, big event, but they should take these special one-shots and annuals and handle it like that in the off years, and then like every two to three years, have a Civil War type event. The problem with all these events is that they happen, and then after they happen, they don't matter. Well, that's what I'm saying. Do you know what matters, what, uh, and it wasn't, it was before we really started rocking, and well, it was before the first event. It took place before the Mutant Massacre. The situation that resonates with me most from my childhood and growing up and uh, reading comic books was the Arthur Adams, Chris Claremont, Asgardian saga that took place in a New Mutant special and X-Men annual that had evolved from two issues of a very thick comic book that was X-Men Alpha Flight crossover written by Chris Claremont and drawn by, I believe it was Paul Davis at the time. You you know what I'm talking about? You should know. I mean, I, I pushed it so hard at the store all the time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm talking about. Those were event comic books without being event comic books. They never took away from the mainstream Uncanny X-Men run or the mainstream New Mutants run. It was just a situation that basically took a two-issue limited series, X-Men Alpha Flight, and then a New Mutants special issue and an Uncanny X-Men annual and told its story. And that was one hell of a story, and it was really good. I get that type of a vibe off Infinite Destinies, the way they've got yeah. it set up. And that's the way I think it should be done until you come across a story that is so good it has to be told and involves the majority of superheroes in it. You can't do that every year. They do. But you shouldn't. Lord, they okay. do it like once every six months, really. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, but I'm talking about that non-event event of the Asgardian, the Asgardian situation with the X-Men and New Mutants and Alpha Flight. Yeah. I'm talking about that non-event still to this day. And I'm not talking at all about World War Hulk or what's the one where Thor lost control of everything, not the recent one. Fear itself. itself, yeah. Yeah, fear itself. You see, I couldn't even remember that name. I couldn't even remember that name. I have more hope for something like Infinite Destinies than I do Empire. I think Empire does need to be pushed back for a while because I didn't, I've actively gone out and tried to get people to sound or act like they're excited for Empire and nobody else. No, I guess you want to come out and people will buy it up. And then that'll, that'll be it. That book will tank really, really fast. We'll wait and see. I mean, I wish him best success, and Empire could be the greatest thing ever. It's just that I'm looking at it, and, you know, you say Kree and Scroll, and this guy has betrayed the Marvel heroes, super teenage superhero number 78-D, who most of the world does not know exists. Eh. All right, well, let's talk about the Marvel Comics and the Marvel Universe that came out this week. Captain America number 20. Writer Tanisi Coates, art by Robert Quinn. Tanisi Coates has been on Captain America a while, and he's had some ups and downs. I liked it when it started, but right now, issue number 20, it kind of felt to me like driving a manual transmission. You keep shifting wrong, and you're grinding the gears. There's some sort of an idea there of what he wants the book to say, but he's not quite able to communicate that through the story. Every so often, we get interrupted to espouse the ideology that's supposed to come through the story. It's not that the ideology is wrong or anything. It's 
the fact that the story is not interesting and has, hasn't really been for a bit now. And then they top it off with a character who turns out it, this character was not dead after all. And I am so sick of that. I mean, for the love of God, it's a C-list character. Keep him dead. Dead or alive. Pick what one. if they bring him back just so he can be alive when he's needed anymore to hold? Well, I guess we just spoiled it. By the way, spoiler alert, the character is... Thunderbolt Ross. Thunderbolt Ross, yeah. Who cares? Ain't no spoiler. Well, you know what? You look back and on Immortal Hulk and in one issue, they did mention where is Thunderbolt Ross is dead? Why isn't he here? Yeah. And then when they were in hell. And so it's clear that they knew he wasn't dead, but this is an old trope for comic books and comic books in general needs to walk away from this. There's no good spin on a death and a rebirth at the moment. All that ended a long time ago. Heck, it got old when Superman did it. Yeah, I think even back, it pretty much became sort of like a joke as far as really, really caring about anybody coming back was when uh, Morrison wrote Justice League. And there was a funeral for like Metamorpho, I think. The only person to show up to the funeral was the priest and Superman. And Superman was sort of wondering why no one was here. And the priest said, well, look around. And this cemetery is filled with a bunch of superheroes that all came back from the dead. This is an easy trope to do and it's really not surprising it's more disappointing when uh the character shockingly shows up and is actually alive i, I don't care i really didn't i like tanisi on a lot of the stuff and i love the interview he did on the black panther dvd blu-ray have been a big fan of his but i think he's lost interest in captain america yeah I gave the writing a two, the art a two, the dynamic a two. The score overall was a two. The art was a little off as well. I didn't care for the art that much. Yeah, I gave it straight twos. There just isn't really anything in this book. You've got so many Marvel books firing on all cylinders, but Captain America and Iron Man right now just can't seem to get up there with Immortal Hulk and Thor at the moment. Guardians of the Galaxy, number three, by Al Ewing, art by Juan Cabal. My question is this. Exactly how many Earth animals have advanced IQs and are colonizing space? A lot of them. Apparently. I mean, you've got a beaver that wants Rocket dead, and you've got... At first, I thought that was Bucky O'Hare, but that's not Bucky O'Hare. They no, call they him... call him O'Hare, don't they? Well, yeah, but they he's got a different first name. No, it can't be Bucky. Uh, Larry Hama owns Bucky. Well, that's what I was thinking. I didn't think Bucky ever appeared in the Marvel Universe. But yeah, this this rabbit's last name is O'Hare, and he's apparently a hitman who in turn is hiring the remaining Guardians to help him. And the hit turns out to be Rocket Raccoon, who neither the Guardians nor O'Hare want to deal with. And again, we go into this situation where last issue, supposedly, Star-Lord has Quill. died. Yeah, Peter Quill has died in issue number two. I've liked Al Ewing's first three issues over all of this, but I'm hoping they resolve the Peter Quill thing real quick and show us that he's not dead. It's okay if in a one story arc, a character presumed dead for whatever reason, and there's no body or something, but when you held a funeral for the character and the character's gone for two years, Thunderbolt Ross, and then suddenly comes up two years, that's not a shock, that's a cheap trick. Yeah. Al Ewing is a good enough writer that I don't think we're going to have the same situation here with Star-Lord. But for the moment, Rocket and Gamora and all of them do believe Star-Lord is dead. This is still a solid book. I didn't think it was as good as the first two issues, but it was much more personal. And something that I really liked in it, Albert, was the opening sequence where instead of retreading dialogue where... Rocket tells Gamora that Star-Lord is dead. That's been done thousands of times. 
where somebody has to tell another loved one that somebody that was important to them both is now dead. There's no new dialogue that's going to emanate from that. So instead of that, what Al Ewing did was he put it all from Groot's point of view. He stole that from King of the Hill. What episode? It was throughout the series. Occasionally they'd do like... Oh, Boomhauer! Yeah, they'd, they'd do a scene. They'd have something told through Boomhauer's point of view. Boomhauer would talk normal and then everybody else would talk like Boomhauer. Yes. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And I'd forgotten about that. Okay, but it was still clever and worked better in this than us having I, I agree. That. I liked it. I thought that was a neat way to, uh, you know, a neat way to do it, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, he let the artwork talk for him. From Groot's point of view, everybody was saying, I am Drax. I am Rocket. I am, you know, instead of forming sentences and all. Yeah. Uh, again, I like the first two issues much better, but we're in the middle of a story, so there's no way to really judge that. I gave the writing a four, the art a three, the dynamic a three. My score was 3.2 on this book. I give the writing a four and the art and dynamic a three. I like the writing, but the art is manageable, like it works. And the dynamic, it's just, I don't know, it seems like it could flow a little bit better between issues. Yeah, the art was better on the first two issues, but this was serviceable. Okay, we're both still on board with Guardians of the Galaxy yep. for the moment. Let's move on now to Outlawed number one. Writer Eve Ewing, artist Kim Jacinto. So I got a question. Did you see the New Warriors book that's supposed to sort of come out of this? I have not seen anything on the New Warriors. It hasn't been you published yet. No, but they've announced a bunch of stuff. Do you want me to... Yeah, go ahead. I don't Do care. you want me to tell, just... you, tell you these characters? Spoiler alert, everybody. No, it ain't spoilers because to... it's got oh. nothing to do with this comic. Okay, go ahead. The new characters, it's called... One's called Screen Time... Who's a meme obsessed uh, superhero teen who's exposed to his grandfather's experimental internet gas. And the other one's called Happy Space. There's Snowflake and Safe Space. S Snowflake and Safe Space, okay. Yep. Yeah, I have heard something about this. There's Be Negative. I'm not too hard on that one. That one that seems like, for a, a mopey teenage vampire, that seems like an okay name. And another one called Trailblazer. And these are the new warriors? Yeah, it, when you if you sit down and read the description of all this, you almost cannot believe this is a real comic that someone's putting out. Is it's meant to? It's clearly internet gas. It's clearly meant to be parody. No, it's it's dead serious. Internet like, gas. like Snowflake and Safe Space are dead serious character names. And when they interview the guy about it, he does it all with a straight face, like it's all meant to be one hundred percent real, legit. Internet gas, Albert. Listen, I didn't make up this dumb stuff. No, I, I know you didn't, because I have, I, when you said their names, I did read something on it, and I just kind of pushed it off as this is parody. But no, I have completely real, because they, they interviewed, like, the writer or whoever that's doing it. He's just talking about, like, it's not awful. Okay, but the writer's probably doing the same thing when I was calling fables fables to people. No, he's and... not. <laughs> no one that's seen this thing can believe that this is a real book that exists. It's not a real book. I mean, I'm sure it's a real book, but it's got to be parody. There's a, it's, it's a wink, wink, nod, no, nod. No, it's not. It, he's doing it as a dead serious thing. Outlawed, number one, by Eve Ewing and Kim Jacinto. I'm telling you. <laughs> I believe you because I've seen the names, but I just assumed it's, it's similar to like Howard the Duck. 
Yes, Howard the Duck's in the Marvel Universe, but nobody this, takes Howard the Duck seriously. This ain't, no, this ain't no Howard the Duck. Well, no, nothing's ever going to be Howard the Duck, but this is... We'll, we'll wait and see. This guy pulling something. No, it's and, not. When you read it and you see the interview, he's trying real hard with the book, but he completely misses the mark. But Albert, I've gone on live TV and given <laughs> a dead serious positive review for the first Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> so... That's that's on your conscience. That's not on mine. <laughs> the guy's screwing with us. He's not. I'm telling oh. you, read the descriptions of all the characters and, and see a little inter a video interview he did about it all, and we'll talk about it next week. Okay. All right. We'll do that. We'll talk about it next week. Outlawed, number one. <laughs> and Kim Jacinto. What the hell is wrong with Carol's chin on the first page? I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But you see, this is the problem. I, I kept going back and forth on this arc. There were points to the artwork in this that I thought was great. And then people's chins weren't quite right, or their cheeks weren't quite right in the right place. What, what I noticed, like what you're saying, when you had an action scene or something to work with... Oh, that god-awful spider That was Liefeldian-level problems on that Spider-Man scene. Well, see, I thought some of that was real good, but whenever he would just draw people standing around, it looked real bad. You say Liefeldian, but me, it had more of a dynamic feel to it. Yeah. Work within the context of the scene. But yeah, like the, the stuff at the beginning where they're just sort of interviewing the kids and stuff were all really bad. Well, I like the eyes in some of them and I like the facial expressions, but then like Carol Danvers' chin and that scene with Captain America, it was weird. The artwork was very unusual in this. I don't know Kim Jacinto's history. There's aspects to this art that I loved, and there's aspects to this art that I hated. I feel really weird. I'm. This is the most difficult judgment call on the artwork that I think I've had to make, make since we've been doing the podcast. As for the story, it kind of felt to me like it wanted to be the Occupy Wall Street book. Didn't they do an Occupy Avengers book that nobody really knew what was going on in, and it just kind of disappeared? Yeah. It really feels like that to me. Congress just passes a law by announcing it on television. They they don't mention voting on it or any due process. It's a Z-level tread story lies of Civil War to me. A school gets destroyed. There's no nuance to it whatsoever. The points that want to be made are slapping you in the face and hitting you over the head. It kind of talks down to the comic book reader. There are better ways to get across ideas and concepts in a story. It seems like they're very condescending to anybody reading it. No nuance, no real character development, no real interest. It's not engaging to me at all, and it's... Miles Morales' solo title, Spider-Man, is so good. It's such a great story and such a great situation. And there's so much potential with the characters in this, like him and Miss Marvel. I'm not saying all the characters. I'm saying Miles and Miss Marvel and a couple of the others. I, I love Moon Girl. It doesn't deliver at all. And I just feel like we're looking at a really bad version of Civil War for teenagers. Like all the teenage characters in this book, I've, I've liked them all and enjoyed most of them solo books. I don't know why they can't make a good team book out of any of it for some well, reason. I think part of the problem is, is that it's just, I don't think it knows what it wants to be. And so therefore we rewrote Civil War, except like I said, just for teenagers. I gave the writing a one. On the art, I gave it a three, question mark, maybe, question mark. Lots of points in this art were great. Lots of other points gave me a, it was pulling me out of the story. And then I gave the dynamic a one because, really, we've read this before. It was called Civil War. 
Mark Miller wrote it. My overall score for Outlawed at number one is 1.7. How about you, Albert? I'm probably a little bit more generous. I gave the writing a two, the art a three, and the dynamic a three. Part of my problem was any clever jokes in it fell flat. It didn't feel like they were really being delivered by the characters. Yeah. It was more like, insert cleverness here, sort of dialogue. Uh, But given that, and the clear retreading, I keep saying Civil War over and again, because that's what it is. That's exactly how Civil War started. I just don't care this time. Not for this. So, eh. Spider-Woman, number one. Writer, Carla Pacheco, and art by Perry Perez. I loved it. I wish she had this attitude all the time. Yeah, this was, I was not going to give a crap about this book because I don't really care for her solo titles a lot. But no, they did a really good job on this book. Chris Claremont was the one that written her original book when she first appeared in the late 70s. She always did have attitude. For a long while, many people didn't know quite how to play her. And I'll give credit where credit is due. The best person that's written uh, Jessica Drew as Spider-Woman was before this and after Claremont has been Bendis because that was Bendis's favorite character at Marvel. Jessica Jones is based off of Jessica Drew. It was originally supposed to be an alias. Yeah. It was originally supposed to be Jessica Drew, and then alias was a hard R rating, and Marvel said, we don't feel comfortable with Spider-Woman doing some of these things. Carla Pacheco just nailed this book to me. I wish she had this attitude all the time. The downside to this, to me, is that it's going to be played off as a side effect of the plot device. Yeah, her attitude is. Yeah. I mean, like, what Marvel not like about Alias? Was it the butt sex? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they probably did not want... They like that? Yeah, they probably did not want Jessica Drew Spider-Woman, who had her own animated television show on Saturday mornings, engaging in such an act. (laughs) (laughs) On on panel, at least. Yes, and and I'm going to go ahead and go on record as saying I agree with that decision. It was probably best to create an entire character. What I'm amazed of is they let the backup get out with that art in it. You didn't like the art and the no 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 no. I, I I thought the art was great, but when was the last time Marvel drew any of their female characters outside of maybe the occasional Mary Jane thing and a and a cover here and there? When did they draw? When have they drawn anyone having curves or anything? I go back to this. Look, women. You put Jessica Drew in an outfit like this. You put Storm in an outfit. It, it it's the same thing as putting Superman and Batman in their skin tight outfit or Spider Man in his skin tight outfit. So far as the coverage, there's no difference between Spider-Man's bodysuit and Spider-Woman's bodysuit, except you can see her mouth and chin and nose, and her hair flows free. This is it. Good artwork is good artwork. The artwork in the backup story was not titillation at all. It was just very well drawn, and it was very crisp. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't say it was cheesecake. I mean, yeah. It wasn't that far, but they, they drew that with the intention of her just being borderline naked with clothes. Kirby naked woman with spray paint, just about. Okay, but you say Kirby naked woman. They're all naked. Yeah, but you know yeah. you know what I mean. Go go look at like Spider Woman comics over the last five years and tell me what she's drawn and looked like. And I know. Look she at that had, back up and tell me what I she's drawn that, and looked like. I hated that costume with the jacket on. I like the new costume, the black version of the costume. Yeah. But you cannot beat the original design for Spider Woman's no. costume. There's something that 
just works wonderfully about the whole thing, curves or no curves. It's just a wonderfully designed outfit. Overall, I gave the writing a five in it. I gave the art a four. I like the art in the backup better than I like the art in the first half of the book, but both artists did very well. I gave the dynamic a three because, like I said, what sold me on this book was Jessica Drew's attitude, and she's just pissy. She is pissy all the way through it, and it was great, and it worked wonderfully, but I think that that's going to be explained off by a plot device. So my overall score for this book was a four. You should definitely pick up number one. Try to get that J. Scott Campbell cover. <laughs> Our Art Germ. Did you see Art Germ's cover? Yeah, they're great covers. I love Art Germ, but I still, J. Scott is still my all-time favorite. Your score's fair enough. It's pretty much the same score. I'm hoping against hope that she keeps this attitude constantly. Yeah. This works for her. It felt like the old Spider-Woman. Next book we have out this week, I read Excalibur. There's no change on Excalibur. It's just dragons and war dogs and a bunch of stuff. It doesn't even look like an X book to me. But X-Force number nine came out, written by Ben Percy and art by Joshua Kassara. It's all right. I didn't, it's all right. Some, of the, some of these X-Men books, the weird thing about these X-Men books is they all skip around. Mm -hmm. They sort of go from like, well, here's a story and here's a one-off and here's a story and here's... But it was okay. I liked it. I, I liked it well enough. Did you notice that Jean Grey was drinking out of an Apocalypse Tiki mug? Yeah. <laughs> so stop and think about that for a second. That's the exact same style Tiki mug of the Disney Tiki mugs and the Star Wars Tiki mugs that have been coming out over the year. Somewhere on Krakoa, there has to be a mechanism or a mutant manufacturing Tiki mugs in the images of the people on the island of Krakoa. I mean, it could be. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe it's just Apocalypse and he's the best-selling tiki mug. But she's she's drinking out of it sitting next to Apocalypse. <laughs> Which I thought that was either good humor or very surrealist. So, so let me ask you this. You thought this was just okay. Tell me what or who is altering Domino. Who's screwing? It's clear somebody or something is screwing around with Domino. I considered for a moment that they had done something long-term. The human rights people that had caught her and skinned her had done something long-term, taking into account anything they could do on Krakoa. But I've come to the conclusion that it's more likely either Xavier or Krakoa itself. Well, no, it's thought? probably Sublime. Oh, how so? Uh, I don't know. I just assumed they'd pull John Sublime up eventually. They could, but you remember she told Sage before she underwent the rebirth process that she wanted to remember every detail of this. And she came out, she vaguely remembers it. Yeah, the, you know, the scene's there, but yeah, the emotions that go with it, no, not so much. Yeah. And she writes it off as she, apparently she wanted to be the best version of herself. And Wolverine even knows something's going on with it. I like the fact that we're getting back to something that was set up a few issues ago. We managed to cover other things, but now we've circled back to this. Things are coming back to bite Beast in the butt really quickly. You and I talked about this. Yeah, he always does dumb crap, though. Well, yes, he does. His entire history has been predisposed to it. Inject random chemicals into me to see what it does to my mutant gene? Not a problem. I'll go ahead and do this. He's always made questionable decisions. This is coming back to bite him in the butt really quickly. The question here is, is to what degree is he willing to go to cover his ass? I don't know. It may be him screwing with Domino. No, I don't think that. I don't think, you see, he hasn't taken an active role in the Domino situation. He's, yeah. this is more about that plant situation he started on that nation. Also about, remember the torture of the people that they caught? 
Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. This is coming back real fast. It'll be interesting to see this, especially because it's Wolverine that's going to immediately pay for Beast's sins. I know Quentin was there too, but, you know, Quentin to me uh, is disposable. Where's Juggernaut at? Juggernaut is not a mutant, my friend. Juggernaut gets his powers from the Heart of Sephora. Did they not cheat that one time? Uh, they cheated it a couple of times, but currently... They said he was a mutant, but the, the Gem of Sidorak just made him more powerful? No, it's, it's all Sidorak now. Black now, Tom's getting tired of this mess. We're going to get Juggernaut eventually. I'm sure we will, but Juggernaut is, Juggernaut is not a mutant. Not mm. currently a mutant. He may have been at one time. Of course, you know, they also had him sleeping with She-Hulk, and She-Hulk completely denies it, even though Deadpool showed her the issue that it happened in. No, no, they wrote that out in, uh, Dan Slott covered that in his She-Hulk run. And then Deadpool showed her the issue. <laughs> the only Marvel character you can trust when it comes to Marvel continuity is Deadpool. Well, that's the same reason Deadpool's not on the island. Deadpool's not a mutant. You knew that, right? Yeah. I'm sure you could invite them, but I gave the book straight fours. I like that they're acknowledging things that happened in the past. I'm curious about the Beast situation. I always like it when the Beast tempts fate. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Well, be honest. You you weren't jumping up and down about it. No, I, I just didn't I didn't care too much for this issue compared to the other ones. But, I mean, this is sort of a, a lead-in issue anyway. Just sort of get everything sort of settled down for an issue. So straight threes? No, no, I'd give the writing dynamic a three. I get the art of four. The art's very, very good. Now, before we jump off of Marvel here, I noticed a couple of trade paperbacks that they had published this week. Immortal Hulk, Volume 6, trade paperback for $15.99. Albert, is it worth it? Oh, most definitely. All the Immortal Hulk trade paperbacks, $15.99 or thereabouts, they're worth it. They're definitely worth picking up. And Volume 6, no different. So we do recommend that. King Thor, Jason Aaron's closing Thor story, dealing with the gods of war and such. $15.99 for that trade paperback, which can be read as a standalone, but is better when you read it as the conclusion to Jason Aaron's four or five year run to Thor. What do you think, Albert? Is that worth it? King Thor? Yeah, King Thor's worth it. Yeah, I would also recommend that if you're not interested in the rest of the Jason Aaron Thor run, this book is even better if you go out of your way to pick up the God Bomb trade paperback. Yeah. Thor God Bomb. That was extraordinary, and it all kind of ties in together. But yes, King Thor, I do agree with Albert, it's definitely worth it. Now we've got the Marvel's hardcover, the Kurt Busiak, Alex Ross classic series, Marvels. They've reprinted it a number of times into trade and to different hardcovers, and they've released a new printing of it with special features, backups to it, sketches and notes and such in the back of it for $50. You think that's going to be worth it? No, not for no $50. Yeah, I was thinking about this. I have the original hardcover the first time they put the collection into hardcover, and I thought that was, I think the original is worth that it costs somewhere around there or it's been so long now it may have been like 34.99 or something yeah. like that at this point get the trade paperback if the trade paperback's currently off the shelves it'll be back soon yeah. so you can probably wait you know you may even trip across some of the original issues which i uh, would highly recommend above all else because they do have sketches and special notes and such in the back we recommend mortal hulk volume six trade paperback and king thor trade paperback and we probably think that there's a cheaper better version of marvel's out there that you can pick up rather than this $50 hardcover. And now, 
DC Comics. Okay, a couple of, uh, we got three books that we review so regularly on this sh uh, show that we're going to give a quick pass for because the issues of these respective books that came out this week, our previous opinions remain the same on them. Albert and I both talked about this. Batman and Jimmy Olsen, we both recommend Justice League, Save Your Money. So we're not going yeah, to go to yeah, we we did read this week's issues, but we we don't want to we can talk about other things. And those other things will start with Deceased Unkillables number two, writer Tom Taylor, art by Carl Mostert and Trevor Scott. Albert, out of all of the superheroes turn into zombie comic books, and there have been far, far too many, this one may be my very favorite. <laughs> I don't know. It's still too edgy for me. I don't, I just, I just don't care for it. You can't really say realistic, but I like the pragmatic point of view this was presenting in it. You've got that main deceased book where the superheroes, what was left of them managed to get what survivors they could from Earth and launched into space after Superman turned into a zombie. This is a look at the at the outcasts, at the the gray area, Deathstroke and Red Hood, Jason Todd, Jason Todd. Yeah. And some of the characters that, yeah, the bad guys that have survived out of this. You've got poor Commissioner Gordon and Cassandra Kane has Batgirl in the middle of all this. It's the Commissioner Gordon point of view and the chat between him and Deathstroke that I think really pulled me into it. And again, it's a bunch of superhero zombies. It is what it is. Out of all the superhero zombie books that we've gotten in the last 10 years, I'm enjoying Unkillables more than I have the rest of them. I mean, I've read this book a million times. I have too. I, if it was better written, I guess I'd enjoy it, but it just doesn't offer anything. I thought it was better written than most, just given, like I said, the interaction between Gordon and the rest of them. You've got your expected situations. I like the Mirror Master aspect to it. And I did chuckle because of the line, holy sh Insert bad word here. That Wonder Woman's a zombie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would ruin your day. <laughs> I gave the writing on it a three. I gave the art on it a three. I gave the dynamic on it a three. I would have normally given the dynamic a two or a one because it's a zombie book, but I enjoyed this one. I guess maybe I was in a good mood or something. Score threes across the board. I don't know. I gave like the writing a one and the art and the dynamic a two. What did you not like about the writing? Most of it. Okay. <laughs> I don't like it. It just isn't good to me. Okay, understandable. I mean, that's a pass. I, I don't, it surprised me that I was enjoying the book because I rant and rave about, you know, I'd put a moratorium on all zombie stories if I could for a while. Year of the Villain, number four, written by James Tinian IV and art by Steve Epting. Oh God, oh dear God, please make this stop. This seems like an awfully important issue for what Snyder's doing considering he doesn't write this issue. I'm not entirely certain that what Snyder thinks he's doing is what Snyder's going to do now. Who knows? Yeah. I think some version of it's coming. I think that the last however many years worth of Snyder-written Justice League is going to be a bad memory once DC assumes its final form under Jim Lee as the sole publisher. Who knows? This is what killed me. I love Tinian as writer, and Tinian on Batman is great. I'm thoroughly enjoying that. And again, I think that this was a dumpster fire that, that got thrown into his lap. Batmanson, 
Yeah, that's Morrison's name for the Batman who laughs. He just casually mentions that he trapped the Phantom Stranger in a bottle uh, and made him talk. Because, you know, it's just that easy. I think Tinian was given an outline from Snyder that says, this is where we're at on Justice League. This is where I need to be at the start of Heavy Metal or whatever they're calling it. And they're like, here, you got four issues to get us there. Because it's odd that you do all this Apex Lex stuff and then Snyder's not the one to wrap that up. Yeah, and then suddenly he's not Apex Lex anymore, which, thank you for that. I'm not complaining about that in the least little bit. I do appreciate that he's now normal Lex Luthor. But the Batman Who Laughs literally says he's he caught Phantom Stranger in a bottle and made him talk. And conveniently, all of that occurred off-page, so we needn't be bothered by the reasons that would never, ever They, they didn't do that in another book or something, did they? Not that I looked around for it. I couldn't find it. If they did, it was off my radar completely. And in all honesty, I was kind of happy I couldn't find it if it does yeah. exist, which I don't think it does. Because given what we know about the Phantom Stranger, the amount of explanation that would go into that would require a miniseries. Yeah. Otherwise, it would just Yeah, but be... they, they, show, they show Batman who laughs and do anything and everything he wants. Oh, yeah. Like, he's just whatever. He's almost like just a magical character. He's a Mary... Yeah, yeah, I've heard the term Mary Sue. This is a Mary Sue. Batman Who Laughs is a Mary Sue. And Grant Morrison has every right to call him out. Anybody that feels the same way should never refer to him as the Batman Who Laughs. Everybody should refer to him as Grant has instructed us, Batmanson. I think that's a better name. In fact, I I think Snyder's probably kicking himself for not coming up with that. Probably. They could drop all of this, cancel Dark Metal, and just go back to writing DC Comics, and I don't think there'd be a great outcry about it. I think we would all just be very grateful and pretend like the last two to three years never happened. Nah, people want that metal book. I don't know why. I mean, the moment you see Wonder Woman with a lasso chainsaw, the hell, people. Really? It would be great if it was an alternate reality. And I think that's how that's going to get explained off, is that it's all an alternate reality. It's over, and I'm grateful for that, so far as Year of the Villain is concerned. I keep calling it Year of the Villain, but it's Hell Risen, number four. I gave ones across the board to it. This Phantom Stranger in a Bottle thing just did me in. No, it ain't no straight ones. I I give the writing a one, I give the dynamic a two, and I give the art a four. Epting at least did a good job. All right. The art deserves higher praise because Epting did do a good job, but the overall score on this book for me is still just a one. Yeah. Now, we haven't visited Nightwing in a while because the last time we visited Nightwing, there was 42 of them running around in different colors claiming to be Nightwing, and apparently they somehow combined to form a giant Nightwing robot. That last part about the robot's not true. But there were multiple Nightwings wearing different colors of the Nightwing outfit running around claiming that they were Team Nightwing. Nightwing number 70, writer Dan Jurgens and artist Ryan Benjamin. The amount of convolution in this book really makes it unenjoyable on any level. I mean, Jurgens is a good writer. It seems like, he, to me, he sort of was having to play cleanup. It could be. I'm not sure when Jurgens came on the book or if Jurgens responsible for the multicolored Nightwing costumes or Team Nightwing or whatever. It's just dry, soulless, and inane, and especially when you compare it to the Robin 80th anniversary that's out this week that we'll talk about in a minute. 
we picked up this book because the Joker comes into play here. The ads would have you believe, or the blurbs on this book would have you believe that there's some form of a resolution in it, because for the past several issues, Dick Grayson has been calling himself Rick Grayson and thinking, his, yeah, not remembering who he is or anything. So far as I'm concerned, you can still save your money and not buy this book. This is stuff that doesn't belong in a Nightwing book. I was thinking to myself, can you even justify having Nightwing with a solo book? Have we run out of ideas? And then when you read the Robin 80th anniversary thing, you're thinking, why aren't these people writing Nightwing? I gave the writing a one, the art a two, and the dynamic of one. So my score on Nightwing number 70 was 1.3. I don't know. I don't... Maybe I just give it two. I don't want to give Jergens a one. No, Jerk, this is not Jergens' first issue. No, I didn't think it was. And I've always been give or take on Jergens. There's some great Jergens stories out there, and then there's some, in my opinion, sucky Jergens stories on it. So he's always been either or with me. Well, Jergens is over the years has just turned into a guy that a very reliable writer. Yes. If they can always just call and like, you want to write this? Yeah, I'll write this. Well, here you go. It's your book. He knows how it works. He knows what he's supposed to do. You can take a very hands-off approach with Dan Jurgens, and he's not going to like overly rock the boat. You don't have to really worry about him. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe, what did I say? Straight twos? Yeah, straight you twos, I guess. Okay, straight twos. Okay, now in direct comparison to that, we have the Robin 80th anniversary 100-page giant special out there. It's $9.99. There are multiple writers and artists throughout this book. Too many to list. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is well worth your $10. It's very enjoyable. The stories were very well told. I don't think there is a loser story among them. The Dick Grayson story in this book, the Dick Grayson stories in this book are easily a thousand times better than anything in Nightwing since before the New 52. And it shows Dick Grayson as he should be. Yeah, I think they should really tap the well from Robin's 80th anniversary and just restart Nightwing's book or bring a new writer on when the storyline ends and go from there because the Dick Grayson in Robin's 80th anniversary is not the Dick Grayson that's in, and I know they're calling him Rick Grayson because he got shot in the head. No, but I it's think not, they're moving away from that. Yeah, they're trying their best to, but I didn't, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> this is a better Dick Grayson. This is a better Nightwing and Robin than is in Nightwing. We're very cautious about how we score the $10 books because it's $10. Yeah. That's two or three standard books right there. I gave this straight fives. I think it's worth your money. I'm not necessarily a huge Robin fan, but I love this book. I was very entertained by it. Yeah, I'll just say straight fives. It's a very good book. It pretty much comes down to it's worth the money, depending on if you like the Robin character as a, in general. All the Robins get a story in it. Grayson got like three or four yeah, he got Well, of yeah, course, he's, he's the first one. He's the main one. But yeah, they gave all the Robins a story. So if you like just the Robin character in general, it's a great book. You should read it. One thing I noticed, they pulled Chuck Dixon out of whatever rock he was living under. Yeah, I noticed that too. He was pretty much blacklisted at some point. I think for this, someone was like, you know what, if, if we're going to do a Robin thing, especially if Grayson and Nightwing, we got to get Dixon yeah. involved with it. It was well worth it. This was a fun, enjoyable book. I'm one of the people that voted to kill Robin during the original Death in the Family situation when he was Jason Todd. I voted three times. That's when they had a 900 number set to call that was charging the phone line, what was it, $2 per call. But I really wanted to make sure that Robin had died. And for me to now recommend a $10 Robin book, that makes it a pretty good book. Yeah. I gave it fives. Albert gave it fives. 
if you don't like Robin, you're not going to like the book. But even if you're lukewarm on Robin, I thought this was a good book. It's a great character introduction to each of them. I enjoyed this. This was fun. This is what comics should be. Agreed. It was a great book. Well, Albert, we come now to our final book of the week. He-Man and the Masters of the Multiverse, number five. I told written you by, you were sleeping on this comic. <laughs> written by Tim Seeley and art by Dan Fraga and Richard Friend. When number one came out, somehow or other, I just thought it was another He-Man and the Masters of the Universe comic. I was reading it and I was thinking like, what in the hell are we doing with all these different realities and, and movie He-Man and space He-Man? And I had completely missed that it was He-Man and the Masters of the Multiverse. I was kind of lukewarm on it. And then Albert made a blurb for it the last time it came out with issue number four. And I went back and I read the whole thing. And I absolutely demanded that we ended the show this week with He-Man and the Masters of the Multiverse number five. Albert... Why don't you tell them what this masterpiece is about? Evil He-Man starts jumping through the realities and just starts killing off all the normal He-Mans while making his way to the center of the He-Man multiverse, which is... Stealing both of the swords. Yeah, he's, he's stealing the power swords as he's going along because you need the power swords. And at the end, they get to the middle of everything, which is the original He-Man mini-comics, and you have a, a good version of Skeletor trying to stop them. And, of course, they stupidly team up with the Skeletor from the He-Man mini-comics who stabs him in the back is the first chance he gets, so we just sort of go from there. That is just a simple, straightforward run-through, and this book is so much more than that. <laughs> you say so. First off, go to Netflix before you read any of this, because I doubt many of you have been picking this up. But now you're going to have to go into your local comic book shop, coronavirus be damned, and demand all the issues. Now, issue number five is not the end of it. We've got one more issue. Yeah. But you've got to demand all the issues to He-Man, Masters of the Multiverse, so you can read this masterpiece. But before you sit down to read it, Watch the Toys That Made Us, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe episode on Netflix. Then sit down and read this in its entirety. To get an extra level of what the fuck... Insert bad word here. ...added to it. Take acid or shrooms before reading this book. Now, Joe Rogan would suggest DMT, but me personally, I'm afraid that by doing DMT and reading this book, you would somehow suck yourself into the Masters of the Universe multiverse. And since I know a lot of you, that just would not be good. So stay away from the DMT. I mean, I wouldn't go that far with it. It's not that complicated of a comic. It's based off a toy line, for Christ's sakes. It is based off a toy line, but Tim Seeley, we've seen evil versions of the heroes invade other realities before. Okay, it happens all the time in comics. There is absolutely nothing new there. But the genius of this, and I'm not a He-Man fan, the genius of this book is that it plays so much into our reality that it's not funny. Now, we never see our reality, but it's playing so heavy and hard off of your knowledge of what's happened to He-Man by way of the toy line and by way of his different incarnations through comics and through the toys that it's not funny. And it's not just that he's homaging this. You start off with the Dolph Lundgren movie version of He-Man and you have the, what is Skeletor's real name? Prince Kel Keldor? Keldor? Keldor. Some of that. Yeah, and you have Prince Keldor who is actually destined to be 
not an evil Skeletor in a different reality. And they traipse through the different He-Man and the Masters of the Universe realities, and you see in each incarnation, and they work backward from it is the beauty of this. And then when you finally come up on the, the mini comics that were in with the action figures, it is so very different than the filmation cartoon reality of He-Man and the other He-Man realities that you've seen. Tim Seeley's done his work on this. I don't know how it's going to end, and it could have just simply ended with this issue if he had wanted to, but this is a freaky, freaky book. But I do highly, and I'm serious about this, I'm not serious about acid or mushrooms or any drugs. Never, ever, ever take any drugs. But I am serious about you watching the, the Toys That Made Us he-Man episode on Netflix before reading this book, because this is one hell of a book. <laughs> well, it's all right. It's more than all right. If oh, somebody... this is Crime Syndicate of America, redone with He-Man. It's more than that. It's not just the standard bad guy He-Man coming into a different reality. And again, I'm not a big He-Man guy, but I've gone from being completely indifferent about this book to being so completely amused with it. I have no idea how to score the book. I can't give it fives across the board. I gave it fours. I decided that I'm going to score it pi. My score on He-Man and Masters of the Multiverse is 3.141592653589, etc., etc., etc. You mean just three? No, no, it, it's it's pi. Yeah, three. Pi is just three. No, pi is 3.14. One five nine two six. It is, and so that's that's my score on He-Man and the Masters of the Multiverse. This is not your standard evil superhero invades good superheroes reality book. It really is not. This takes many, many twists and turns, and you're going to appreciate it all the more the bigger the He-Man fan you are. As a matter of fact, I'm disappointed with myself that I don't like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe more because I feel I would get more out of this book. <laughs> you have anything to add to that, Albert? No, I guess not. I kind of want a time machine now so I can go back and, you know, screw Transformers. I'm into He-Man. <laughs> Tell you one thing, that Transformers old Transformers cartoon aged a lot better than that He-Man cartoon. To me, the He-Man cartoon was always tongue-in-cheek. What did we learn today, Orko? Uh, I mean, G.I. Joe was so much cooler with their, and now you know, and knowing is half the battle. I remember in He-Man, they were worried kids would be would copy Ram Man about running his head and stuff. I think there was like a whole episode about how Ram Man shouldn't run his head and everything. Like, what else is he going to do? This was a major problem <laughs> with kids. <laughs> well, how old were you when you were watching He-Man? I was young. I was born in 81. I hadn't been real. But I remember watching a cartoon, having a ton, a ton of the He-Man toys and live action movie. And I think I sort of got out of He-Man when they when they did this, the space version of He-Man. I didn't care for that. I know it existed. I recall He-Man had a ponytail. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe filmation cartoon started in 1983. He-Man didn't come close to Transformers for me. But of course, 1983, also the year Return of the Jedi came out. Me and my brother went to watch the Masters of the Universe movie. And I remember going to watch that movie because we both decided right then and there that movie was terrible. Yeah, I did too. I went to see the movie. And this is another one of those movies that they got a critic, a quote, end quote, critic to say, better than Star Wars. Right. The problem with that movie was that Canon and who, who owns He-Man? Mattel? 
Was that who owned He-Man? Yeah, it was. It what? Yeah, it was Mattel. I'm not sure who owns them. I know DC Comics and Warner Brothers has well, Mattel the rights owns, to them. Is owned by Hasbro now, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, I don't know who actually owns the IP. Yeah. I, don't, I don't mind. But anyway, like it was supposed to be Canon and the Toy Maker that was supposed to split the budget. Yeah. So once they started making that movie, the studio itself, who was supposed to bank half that movie, decided that they weren't going to bank that movie no more. Because if you ever look at that movie, that throne room set on Eternia, huge, great looking set. Mm-hmm. But that's the only thing outside of the little out, outside stuff they do at the front of the movie. That's all you get from Eternia is that one big set. And they're supposed to have this huge action scene at the end that went over the whole thing that they had to cut down. And that's why two-thirds of the movie takes place in a high school gym. And that was a high school gym that was in California. If they had talked to Courtney Cox, who was also starring in the movie, I'm sure they could have gotten Mountain Brook High School Gym for a much, much cheaper price than they did that high school gym. I love Frank Lagella in it, though. When they interviewed him, because I watched, there's a, uh, a documentary. Yeah, there's a documentary on the movie. About yeah. the movie, like, I give that man credit. He does not badmouth that movie that I remember. No, he even seemed to enjoy playing Skeletor. Comes off like he enjoyed playing. He may have hated it. I don't know. But in the interview, he was very professional about the way he'd talk about that movie. I remember that before Dragon Con was Dragon Con, there was Atlanta Fantasy Fair. And they had representatives from the movie company that uh, the year before Masters of the Universe came out. And they were showing us still frames from it. They were showing us tons of stuff that this company was turning out from movies. They also had scenes from Manhunter, which was based on Red Dragon, the novel Red Dragon. They showed us scenes from Masters of the Universe, and the guy that was emceeing this event, actually, I recall him making the comment, they've got Franklin Jella has Skeletor in this movie. And then into the microphone, but under his breath, he says, hire one of the best actors in the world and immediately slap a rubber mask on his face. And I was like, wow, man, that's that's not socking anybody in here up for it. <laughs> I still went to see it at the theater, though. And I think I went to see it at the theater mostly because Courtney Cox was in it. And uh, Courtney Cox came from Birmingham, and her her brother is a wonderful, wonderful doctor, surgeon here, and had treated my grandparents and stuff. So I think I felt some sort of obligation to go see it out of that because... I was not a He-Man fan at all. Back then, you couldn't tell if something was going to be a good movie or a bad movie. I don't know. I think you probably could. Uh, so so you're just saying I was just too much of an idiot to realize it? Probably. But see, that Canon Films, they pulled crap like that the whole Canon, all the time. Canon, that's Yes. So there's like a, a documentary out called Electric Boogaloo, like the story of Canon. That's a real good documentary about that studio, and I think they even covered the He-Man stuff in there, too. Canon. Oh, yeah, it was Canon. The guy was Canon. That's also who turned out Manhunter. Yeah, okay. They also pumped out like Chuck Norris movies. And- yeah, yeah. Uh, Invasion USA, that was another one they they uh, advertised there at the convention. Yeah, we'll never have. That's... I don't lament the creation of the internet, but you'll never have situations like that again where you could go to a convention and get uh, inside scoop for the next year, not the year you went to the convention and be able to come back and impress all your friends with it. Like, well, I remember like you'd go like rent a VHS or go to a movie back in the 80s. It would say 
you know, you see a trailer for the movie, and the movie was coming out like 18 months down the line. Oh, God, yeah. Like, it'd be like whatever year you was in, it'd be like coming winter of the following year or something like that. Yeah, they'd slap the trailers together and get them out as quick as they could. No special effects, anything. Of course, you know, special effects was a completely different creature back then. Yeah. So, in conclusion... During your self-imposed exile in this time of crisis, we highly recommend you watch Masters of the Universe 1987 with Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella. I ain't got no exile. I still got to go to work. I still stick to it. Frank Langella was a great Skeletor in he that. Did a Every, good, he did a good job. Everybody sucked in it, but poor Dolph. I feel bad for him. But Frank Langella... Boy, he wasn't letting anything else stand in his way. He was turning in that damn performance, mask or not. And he looked, the mask looked good. Yeah, especially for the time and all. He does. He was a great villain. I just wish he had a hell of a script to work with. You had a hell of an actor. And for no other reason, seriously, if you hadn't seen it, it's worth watching the 15 to 20 minutes that he's in the movie, his Skeletor. Because he's not in it a lot. No, like all you can tell all the throne room stuff was pretty much filmed at the same time. Yeah, the throne room stuff had to be filmed like during the course of a week. And then you can tell that they picked up extra scenes when he comes to Earth for all of 15 minutes. Yeah. The rest of it is complete trash. You won't recognize anybody in it. For some reason, He-Man's carrying a gun. That's what you're in for, but it's worth it. It's a fun, bad movie to watch, and Frank Ligella's greatest Skeletor. Tony, no, don't tell him to watch He-Man. Let's watch Kroll instead. No, I hated Kroll. I like Kroll. Kroll had no redeeming qualities I to had, me. I had, I had Kroll on VHS. I, too, can throw a Frisbee. So what? <laughs> you know, it was a throwing star. What's that really, really bad director? The one responsible for the very first Fantastic Four film that never made it to the movie. Oh, Roger Corman? Roger Corman. Roger Corman did a movie. It was during the everybody wants a Star Wars situation. And so he got a bunch of people that you almost recognized. And he got my favorite Martian, Ray Walston, in it. It was just a hell of a mess. But it's one of these mesmerizing, can't look away from it, really, really bad movie. And on top of everything else, James Cameron. This was one of James Cameron's first job on this movie. You mean Battle Beyond the Stars? That it? I'm pretty sure that's it, because the, the ship has a pair of titties on it. Well, I don't recall that. Yeah, look at that ship. See what that ship looks like. How do you not remember gonna that? Going to be a lot of fun. Insert bad word here. In editing in this that ship had a pair of breasts on it. I watched that movie three or four times because it's so bad. And I never noticed that design of the ship that you're referring to. How do you not notice that? <laughs> I was too busy trying to figure out the contract that you'd have to sign to be attacked by a worm in that manner. <laughs> Galaxy of Terror. It was Galaxy of Terror. Oh, it was Galaxy of Terror. Nah, yeah. you're, are you sure... I'm positive. I'm looking at it right here on IMDb. It was Galaxy of Terror. Yeah. Did he do also do the Battle Beyond the Stars? I'm not going back to look for Battle Beyond the Stars, but it was Galaxy of Terror. If you look at the art design on it, you could tell that they wanted it to be a cross between Alien and Star Wars. Some of the fascinating things about Galaxy of Terror is that there was so much work put into the background design and the matte paintings for it to be as bad of a movie as it was. It was like a slow-motion car wreck. 
all the way through it. And then there are some scenes in it that you're like, they would never, ever even allow this in a script today. Oh, it had Aaron Moran, Joni from Joni Loves Chachi yeah, and Happy yeah. Days. She was in it. Robert Eagles was in that too, I think. He was. He, Freddy yeah, Krueger was in that was in one. It. He was in that one. Yes, Freddy Krueger was in it. I forgot about him. but And I'm going to say this with all candor. He probably turned in the best performance out of everybody in this movie. He really did. That was a legitimate performance in comparison to what everybody else was doing. One of those movies, one of those movies of those two, I think, had a spaceship in the walls of the spaceship in one area. Those old square McDonald's takeout, the little rectangular things. Yeah. And that's what the wall was made out of. It was styrofoam takeout containers. It could very well have been this one because there was a lot of practical use you could see going on. Well, I don't on, know. But... Battle, Battle Beyond the Stars is, is way, way cheaper looking than that other one, Galaxy of Terror. Uh, if you want a really bad movie to watch that just completely mesmerizes you, watch Galaxy of Terror. Well, that's going to be all of our recommendations. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Albert, you got anything? Oh, good. Albert's good. Okay, guys and gals, do what the CDC says, recommends and all. Please stay safe and nobody panic. Just do what you have to to get through this. Please continue to send us your questions. Let us know if you like us, hate us, what we can do better, what we could do worse. We're open to any and all suggestions. Kingdom Casts, that's Kingdom, C-A-S-T-S, at gmail.com, KingdomComics at gmail.com, and Kingdom Casts and Kingdom Comics on both Twitter and Facebook. Just let us hear from you. Keep it coming. Look, especially especially if you're in a quarantine situation, hit us up. I've been in quarantine since we closed Kingdom. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go to the beach. Don't go to the beach. Why not? Don't Everybody make... else is going to the beach. Like it, fucking that's dolls just... or something. That's can't close just... the beach. Well, you can't close the breach, Brody. <laughs> Don't kill that shark. Don't kill that virus. Hey, did you notice that the that the mayor manages to keep his job through Jaws 2? That's what you get for, for having ballots with being able to vote straight ticket. You don't ever get no in nobody. I also got in an argument with somebody, with a younger individual that I was seeing years ago. And I was like, oh, you've never seen Jaws? And we were sitting there watching Jaws on the couch. And she said, not only is this movie ridiculous, it could never happen. They're, look, they're smoking in the hospital. And I looked at her and I was like, yeah, you could smoke all over the hospital. They would hang signs on the door saying, please don't smoke in here, oxygen in use. But you could smoke anywhere. They didn't believe that. That sounds uh, young... like you're dating a 12-year-old. Uh, no. <laughs> you said younger person I was seeing. Didn't know nothing about smoking in a hospital. <laughs> we were listening to, there was an Aerosmith song, and she turns to me and she says, what does he mean by the rabbit done die? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. This was after the Jaws things. No, when I say younger person, I I, I meant they they were. How old are you? I'm 38. Yeah, they they were only like two years uh, younger than you. Yeah, I was just making fun of how you talk about dating a younger person. Well, that was. <laughs> so. But when all that occurred, when all that occurred, it was many yeah, many yeah. years ago. It was over. It was over a decade ago. So uh, having to explain why people were allowed to smoke in a hospital that was a lot of fun. Anyway, everybody, please stay safe. We got the Star Wars Episode Nine Medium S special coming up. But don't so hold the... this. Don't hold this to it. <laughs> Look, I am way behind in editing everything. Before even before all the quarantine stuff started and everything, I was not having a great year and. Just 
just a lot of stuff been hitting to take up my time, but I'm getting back on track now. And so we'll get all this back out and some more specials and some more goodies to you. So stay with us. Let us know how you're doing. If you just want to talk, if you just want to email back and forth and both Albert and I have our own Facebook pages too. We're real easy to find. So let us know. Don't get bored out there. You can hit us up and aggravate the snot out of us. Go okay. and take me out and buy me dinner. I'd be okay with that too, probably. What if they just brought you dinner instead? No, I like to live dangerously. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, don't do that. I don't want anybody else hitting me up on Twitter telling me what an idiot I am. I know what an idiot I am. I don't need it explained to me. <laughs> Nobody hired asked... me. You couldn't have been too smart. <laughs> no, I think you and Jason were probably the yeah were probably the best moves I could have made. So. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Tell them good night, Albert. Good night, everybody. Kingdom Casks is owned by Kingdom Comics Incorporated and produced by Stan Daniel and Albert Marsh. No part of this program may be reproduced, replicated, or replayed without permission. Special thanks to Sandra Swindle. Also, thanks to our content contributors, Jason Bean, Tim Bryan, Denise Daniel, Josh Duke, Alex Fitzpatrick, Charles Hickey, Allison Marceau, Mark Adam Miller, and Contrita Olstead. Logo designed by Geoffrey Gwynn. Edited by Stan Daniel. Kingdom Casts is copyrighted 2020. All rights reserved.